Well, recently our country celebrated its annual Memorial Day where we remember the sacrifices of those who serve our country. Uh, And then this past week we uh, had the 75th anniversary of the invasion of Normandy, which was a huge event in uh, the turning of the war, World War II. Heroes are a big part of our country's history. It's a big part of life, and it's a good thing to have people to look up to. Heroes are not a bad thing if they're the right heroes. We even see this in the New Testament. We're called to uh, imitate Paul as he imitates or follows Christ. We're called to imitate Jesus. And then we recognize in life, in all humility, that we need mentors and people that will influence and, and direct us. And so to have people in our lives that we can pattern our life after is actually an act of humility. It's an act of wisdom. Um, It's an encouraging thing, so long as the person who is the hero is demonstrating the characteristics that Jesus would have us have. Uh, My hero growing up was a football player, and as much as I talk about sports, that probably isn't surprising to all of you. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and the Washington Redskins were my team, and uh, in high school, uh, they drafted uh, a relatively unknown small cornerback by the name of Daryl Green, who then spent 20 years as a Washington Redskin, his entire NFL career. Um, Daryl Green was a Christian, and as a new Christian, uh, and one who then went off to college and started to grow as a believer, I loved that Daryl Green, in every interview he had, he would uh, reference Jesus. We as Campus Crusade for Christ students, or as they call them now, crew students, because crusade has bad implications. Crew, at that time, we would take around this film called Football Follies. We'd show it at fraternities and other places. And one of the people who gave a testimony in this Football Follies film was Daryl Green. He talked about the joy that Jesus had given him. And this was all really inspiring to me. So Daryl Green was, uh, was a great hero of mine. Uh, at the conclusion of his career, which is uh, a little over a decade ago, or I mean, sorry, it was a couple decades ago, uh, but a, a little over a decade ago, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I looked forward to his Hall of Fame speech, figuring it was going to reference Jesus quite a bit, which it did. Um, interestingly enough, though, uh, I was a bit put off by his attitude. Something had changed in the way I'd previously heard him speak. And Really, it was encapsulated in the concluding marks of his address. Uh, Green, he all throughout it kind of traced the events of his life and all along the way thanked people graciously for helping him in various ways and at various times. But I feel the compulsion to read this to you so that you know what it meant for me to hear him speak this way. The concluding sections of his Hall of Fame induction speech read like this, quote, but God had a plan for me. I stayed the course. Not only did I stay the course on the field, I stayed the course faithfully to this woman of almost 24 years, faithfully to my community, faithfully to my pastor and the Grace Covenant Church, faithful to my community and the centers and the other works and faithful to the people. And so I stand here today and I'll say something to you that is some what unique. I believe that this day 
is part of the continuation of God's sovereign purpose and righteous destiny for my life. And that being that being knowing Jesus, loving him and make him known. I did that even as a professional football player everywhere I went. And that was done through the visibility, the influence, the access and all that God gives us, the Lord gives us while we play a childhood game. Can I tell you today at the expense of sounding real self-righteous, I belong here. I belong here. I belong here because I know what to do with it. I know what to do with God's fame, with God's dollars, with God's visibility, God's influence, and God's relationship. I know what to do with it. And then he tagged it, to Jesus be the glory. <laughs> I thought to myself, that's an odd way to end that paragraph because it seemed that he was pointing quite a bit to his faithfulness. It didn't just seem that. And as he said, at the risk of sounding arrogant, now those tea leaves have been red, chief. You sounded arrogant. Uh, you sounded, sadly, like somebody I wouldn't want to pattern my life after because, frankly, Jesus said, or that Paul said of Jesus in Philippians 2, imitate Christ who didn't consider God something, his very nature, something to be held on to. But he made himself a servant. Humility was the characteristic that Jesus encouraged. And so, as I've seen over the years, the people that I've admired, really admired as Christians, were older people who were, as they were growing up, got a growing sense of their incapacity. They grew in their understanding of their own weakness. They didn't marvel at their fidelity. They marveled that they had made it thus far and hadn't blown it. They, they were amazed as they looked around at their contemporaries and said, how in the world did I make it? And they didn't. It, it wasn't a testimony to their own faithfulness but instead to the faithfulness of God to keep them through all of the struggles and trials and, and painful moments of life. Our sermon series today, which is our summer series in the book of Esther, is going to work through the, final, the first 18 verses of uh, Esther chapter 2 with the hope to show that God's providence is over all promotion that we get. When you arrive at some place in life, when you are promoted to that place, whether it's a job or a location or a stage of life, understand that God has, is, is the one who has graciously guided that process. Whether you got the promotion you thought you were going to get, what you can take comfort in today is that God is ultimately the decider. And so we're going to look at the life of two new characters in this drama we call the book of Esther. Now, last week we'd studied that King Ahasuerus, who is the seedy sort of Persian like ruler, uh, and if you say his name fast enough, it sounds like King. Are you serious? Um, he and this is, must have been what his his wife Vashti thought when he asked her to come to some banquet so he could parade her in front of all his officials. He might she must have thought, King, are you serious? And so. She didn't come, which created a constitutional crisis effectively for them, which meant she disobeyed the king and he was insulted. Everybody insisted that she be dethroned as queen. She was. And then after a season 
without a queen, which historians tell us is almost four years. And in that four-year span, potentially, uh, well, we know he had an ill-fated attempt at going to war with Greece. So there is some speculation that at the tail end of this humiliating defeat, uh, King Are You Serious says, I think I need a wife to comfort me in my failure. Uh, King Xerxes decided to listen to the young men give him a suggestion. And right away, I could probably end my sermon right here by just saying, if you're getting your advice from young men, bad decision, right away. Thank you. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he make his face shine down upon you. Uh, Because this is like really not wise. And so the young men come to him and say, hey, I got an idea. You need a queen? Let's have the first forced beauty contest, the Miss Sousa beauty pageant. Uh, and so what happens is, is he, that sounds good to him. So they go throughout all of the region and carry the preliminaries, which basically means they're going to take the beautiful women from these towns. They're not going to say, who'd like to enter the contest? They're just going to actually go and force these young women. Now, there's some historians that speculate that some might have seen it as an opportunity to move up the food chain socially. But in reality, they were moving into something that was very dehumanizing. So at this juncture in the story, we're going to meet two new characters. The first is Mordecai, who was a Jew born in the Jewish exile in Persia. Uh, His great-grandfather was Kish, who was a, a member of the tribe of Benjamin and an original exile. He was there when Nebuchadnezzar led the king and the Jews into Uh, exile. Kish's name is also significant because it it connects the the family historically to Israel because the father of their first king, King Saul, was named Kish. And so what happens is is the, the book of Esther doesn't mention God or the Hebrew religion at all, but all throughout it you see the author making certain that we know that this story is connected to Israel's history. This is part of the history of Israel. Esther is often made to be a hero. She's the second character we're meeting in this drama. Uh, But in reality, our hope today would be to show that she's merely the means by which God saved his people. Everything she was, everything she had, and even the effort that she put forth was by the grace of God alone. And in the end, the hero of our story is always going to be God. A writer for the website Desiring God, Andre Yi, who happens to be the founder of Gospel Translations, wrote this, quote, At times, these heroes of the faith lack the character we expect. Other times, just like the Israelites at the edge of the Red Sea, they simply face the limitations of their ability or circumstances. In either case, every heroic story in the Bible draws attention to our need for the ultimate and true hero, God himself. In the New Testament, this was the case as well. The Apostle Paul went to great lengths to make sure that everybody thought that Jesus was the one who was our king, who was the leader, who was the savior. And he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who always leads us triumphantly triumphantly as captives in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So let's enjoy this Esther drama today and see our hero God. 
who's providential over all promotion. And we're going to do that by looking at, ultimately, everything we have that would get us to this place of promotion is a gift from God. We'll start with what seems like the most obvious, and that is that our gifts are by His grace. The gifts we have, who we are, the talents we possess, we did not create those. Those were part of who God made us to be. And we see this in the seventh verse of Esther 2. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Hadassah was Esther's Jewish name. And again, it's important to remember that this is the purpose that the author had to direct us back to this being about the Hebrew people and their history as a covenant people and God's delivering of them. Uh, it shows that the author was familiar with her heritage and that the deliverance of the Jewish people is the ultimate theme of the book of Esther. Uh, some think Mordecai was the author. Others think it might have been the prophet Ezra or Nehemiah. Um, Whoever it was, they possessed a detailed knowledge of Persian culture, of etiquette, of history, along with some pretty good detail about the inside of the palace itself. So someone who wrote this book was actually had been in Susa at one time. Mordecai's uncle, uh, Abihail, and his wife had passed away, so Mordecai agreed to raise Esther as his own. And at this point, I have to confess that last week I inadvertently referred to Mordecai as Esther's uncle, when in fact he's her cousin. Uh, nevertheless, there are some, por- some important aspects of Esther's life that we need to be able to recognize just here in verse 7. One is, her cousin was a good man. All right, As we all see, she admires and reveres the counsel of Mordecai. Even in our reading today, you see that she didn't reveal her nationality because Mordecai told her not to. It's not the last time we'll see this in the book of Esther. She considers what he says gold. This is her adopted father. I mean, amazing that she's like, tell me more. Wouldn't it be great if our kids were like that? Father, pour out your godly wisdom to me. I'm all ears. Uh, that happened right before my children turned into teenagers. And then... Since then, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, I'm told that eventually they'll come around and go, okay, you obviously know a few things. You've gotten this far in life. So I'm hopeful. So was their mother. Needless to say, our girl, she was really fond of Mordecai. And he could have been a real jerk. I mean, you have cousins that you don't like, right? You have cousins that you wouldn't be, you'd rather be like a ward of the state than live in that cousin's home. I know I do. This worked out for her. She could have had no relatives in Susa, for that matter. All right? She could have had, every one of them could have either died or returned to Israel. But she has this one cousin who's just a wise, godly guy who she has great fondness for. And he happens to be there to shepherd her and be her adopted dad. That's a miracle, not of her choosing. The second gift that she has is that she was a natural beauty as the kids say she was a hottie i mean by and naturally so that's all she's got going for at this point she's 
She's lovely to look at, and she had a beautiful figure. And that little detail there is what makes me think Mordecai didn't write this, because no adopted father would ever include that detail about his daughter. So I not jokingly think it was probably Ezra or Nehemiah, just based on that verse right there. Uh, she did not create herself to be beautiful. And there's no indication that she was like into fitness or anything. There was no anytime fitness Susa. Uh, in her location. There was nothing like that. She had these two important things going for her. Okay, she had a, a, a family who cared and natural giftings. These are two things that are very easy to forget, particularly the family thing. How fortunate are most of us for the families that we were born into? Perhaps you were born into a family that was educated and thought it was an important thing for you to go to college, that they actually helped to pay for college or paid for it all out. Maybe you were born into a family with great wealth, and that has enabled you to get to a place in life that others behind you haven't been able to get, and it's all because of your family. Perhaps you were born a certain race. If you're white in America, you've got a privilege. I know that's sort of a hot-button social term, but the reality is, is it's a gift. It's not something to feel guilty about, but it is something to remember. God gave me this. I didn't earn this. This is a byproduct of where I live, the times I live, the people that birthed me. All of these things are related to family. And then, of course, there's obvious that there are certain things that some of us possess that others don't. And there's no room for pride. There's even not room for discouragement. As a former youth pastor, I can tell you, I have the, the, I have the great perspective that, you know, it was 22 years ago I started as a youth pastor. And uh, is that right? No, it was 24 years ago I started as a youth pastor. Whew, time is flying by, friends. And so 20-something years later, now I can look back and see teenagers who are now full-fledged adults with children of their own. And I have the perspective of seeing that when they were teenagers, some of them said, I'm not as physically developed as some of my peers, and therefore I'm not as popular as some of my peers. And now life has taken them to another place, and they're extraordinarily attractive later adult life people. There are people who were like nerds in middle school, and they weren't homecoming court material and now they own a tech company, and they are the king of their particular world. This is true. The revenge of the nerds is a real thing in our culture. You don't think that Bill Gates was homecoming king, do you? This is what happens. If you have enough perspective on life, you see that people have opportunities that are given to them that are just by virtue of how God has made them. They developed physically as an athlete earlier in life than others did. I had a guy I played basketball with in high school. When he was in high school, he was 5'9". Two years into college, he was 6'4". That would have made me upset because at 6'4 in high school, he could have done some real damage. But he lived with it. This is what happens. We recognize that ultimately God is the one who gives us these great gifts I, I was uh, once playing in a pro-am um, when I was a radio sports reporter, and I was paired with an NFL player who at the time was all the rage, and he couldn't have been thrilled that being in the cart all day 
or at least for four hours with some small town little sports guy. And I was asking him questions and because that's what I do. And I asked him, hey, have you done anything? You're extraordinarily fast. Have you ever done anything to improve that? Or is there anything you can do to make yourself more athletic? And he goes, no, I'm just sort of that way myself. Uh, you know, it's what separates people. Some people are more gifted than others. And he said it in such a way as to say, I'm pretty darn impressive. As if he could take credit for naturally being faster than everybody else. I, I found that odd at the time. And I remember thinking, I want to be a person who emulates Christ in seeing that everything I have is a gift that Jesus' humility would be the mark And I could say that genuine Christians would never be comfortable thinking they were better than others, especially if they had a proper understanding of where talents come from. The Apostle James wrote in James 1, 16 and 17, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The position you have, the promotion you've received is in part because of God's gifting, things he's given you that you had nothing to do with. Some people might ask, well, what about, you know, you know the, the, the efforts to foster that talent? Can't I be proud about that? Well, no, not really. Uh, in one sense, you could be thankful and, and perhaps your friends and family express pride, but the maturing Christian is always going to grow in their comprehension of God's grace, evidenced both in his gifts given, but in the second thing we'll look at here and from Esther's life is the gains given are by his grace. Our gains in life are too by his grace. The text says, when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed... And when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. So you've got this mass of beautiful women from all around the country, and somehow or another, Esther stands out. And we're all too ready to go, it's because she was more beautiful than the rest of them. But... You know, have you ever, like, watched a beauty pageant on television? It's like, they're all beautiful. I mean, everybody's beautiful in that world. So what would make one person stand out in another? And there's no indication they had a talent portion of this show or anything that would have put her above the rest. There's just this indication that, the, that this guy, his attention was fixed on Esther. In addition to giving gifts... God gives us favor with others. He, for reasons, according to the scriptures, unrelated to us, makes us a favorite. Uh, Undeserved favor is the theological dictionary definition of grace. Unmerited favor is what the gospel is all about. And this was true for Esther as well. The text says, many young women were gathered, yet she was chosen. The official gave her helpers, and, uh, and it says in the text too that, that the helpers and she were given the best place in the palace. You know, I've known some wealthy people, and in a couple of cases, 
some of them had very easily forgotten the breaks they'd gotten along the way. They, they'd forgotten about the times God intervened in that moment. If you've ever watched any of the historical accounts or fictitious or dramatic accounts of the titans of Silicon Valley or Seattle, you'll see in Bill Gates' story there was this moment in, in his life where he got a break. IBM didn't recognize the value of licensing software. They thought it was all in the building of these physical computers. He said, well, we'd, we'd like you to pay us uh, for licensing this software. And they went, okay. That simple oversight on the part of IBM meant that the whole world was going to owe Bill Gates money at some point. And this is how Microsoft was built and how he became a billionaire. A, a break. A moment when things could go one way or the other and they go your way. This is favor. This is an opportunity that is not because of anything you have done. Some of us have experienced that in life in one way or another. Carolyn and I own a home in Southern California, one we really like. We didn't get this home because I have superior real estate skills. Or that I am a trend watcher and I could see that the market was dipping. And I, it, it was because we happened to be at that moment in life where we were able to buy a home. And in 2012, the real estate market was in the toilet in California. And so we could afford a house. We couldn't afford a house. And I'm not complaining about my salary. I'm just saying we couldn't afford one in this area now. So I can't stand here and go, let me tell you about my skills as a speculator in real estate. It was a gift of God's grace. It had nothing to do with us. It was just the kindness of the Lord. Perhaps you could say the same thing. Esther seemed to be capable of maintaining this perspective as she was being guided along by God's grace and providence, his sovereign undeserved favor. The middle part of today's passage sees more evidences of God's grace in her life. Uh, the, the person in charge of she and her friends gave her makeup. So this is stuff that she potentially didn't have before. So if she was already really attractive and wasn't wearing makeup, that's impressive in and of itself. And then on top of that, they finally put her on a fitness plan so, I mean, you know, by the time this year-long experience is over for her, you know, she's probably never looked better. Uh, all of these things are things that she wouldn't have had access to. Mordecai, her adopted father, her cousin, had such great love for her. It says in the text that every day he'd go by to check on her, to see what's happening with her. He knew what she was up against. He knew the risks. He knew the way that she might be devalued in this process. He loved her enough that he was concerned about her. He was pouring out his heart to her. And then the experience itself is 12 months. I mean, if it wasn't for the, what they were being called into, this might be somebody's dream that they would spend 12 months of virtual spa life, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments. Now, the point of this is that all of the efforts of improvement that Esther would have made in that year-long span were all things that she wouldn't have had the resources to be able to do herself. 
They were made possible in part because of the favor God gave her. Now, here's the sad part is despite all of this luxurious indulgence, this is the risk that was involved. Most of these girls would spend only one night with the king, and if he wasn't pleased, whatever that means, he, they would then go to live among the concubines for the rest of their life. And they would spend most days just idly waiting around. Um, the harem system that these pagan kings had was inhumane. It grossly devalued women as people. And so now you see the grace of God in Esther's life. Choosing her wasn't just giving her this royal position. It was keeping her from what would have been a humiliating life of pain. So our gains are by his grace. Our gifts are by his grace. But others might say, Chuck, you're, you're not really given Esther's effort and her character and all she did to develop this wisdom. It's due respect. And, and I would say this is a concept that all of us must embrace if we're going to be truly humble Christian people. And that is that everything, even the ability to believe and trust God, faith, all of that is a gift from God. Romans eleven six, the Apostle Paul, in speaking of the Jewish people's faith, would say this, and I think it's a principle we all should get behind. <laughs> but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. See, if there's just, there's just a little bit of your work involved, then what happens is, is your perspective begins to be tainted like a, like a little piece of sewer water and a bottle of spring water. It, it, how much do you want to poison and steal from the glory of God for your own honor? In this particular case, we see that our, certainly our gifts are from God, our, our gains are from God, but the third thing we, we should recognize is that our growth is through His grace. Verses 14 and 15 of Esther say some important things. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who'd taken her as his own daughter to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning in the favor of all who saw her. She deferred to the wisdom of the person who was in charge of her. This is a characteristic that Esther was regularly demonstrating. Mordecai would tell her, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. Trust me, this isn't going to go well for you. She said, okay. Her director in this particular affair says, you know, I want all these things. And if you've ever watched one of those television shows like, you know, Dress for Success or one of these ones that my wife and daughter will watch and drag me into every now and again, they'll have some, they'll have some couple, these, some fashion experts that will try to get somebody who dresses like a slob to dress normally for a change. But they always resist it as if it's an insult to their pride and instead go back to wearing tents or camping gear or whatever it is that they feel is attractive. And they foolishly spurn the wisdom of people who clearly know more than they do. And in this case, Esther's saying, hey, I'm going to go in there. I'm not going to try to do anything special. What do I need? So she has this, this humility. See, God has provided a way for us to walk in his blessings. 
the commands of his word and the wisdom he gives through others are pathways created for us to experience his grace. And it's important to see that it's a pathway to his grace. Obedience to God is a means of grace. Uh, in the absence of God's written word, Esther was relying heavily on the wisdom of her adopted father and others. But both his word and his wisdom are his means. And when you think about it, the means of grace, um, the things that are given for our growth and wisdom and character can only be followed by the strength and power of the Spirit because we're broken. And we tend to think of ourselves as sufficient for making our own decisions about life. And so we tend to be focused, like so focused on what we're doing that we miss these exit ramps. And that's really what I'd like to maybe give you a word picture of today is that, you know, if your eyes aren't on Jesus and your head isn't up looking to him, you're going to miss the places where he's telling you to go. And you're going to recognize, I need your grace to even have the the wisdom to take that exit ramp or that particular road in life. From time to time, I'll be in Orange County and I'll be blowing back. This has happened to me three separate times coming north on the 57. I'm so focused on whatever it is that's in front of me. I'm just looking at the road and I'm in the HOV lane, apparently, if Carolyn's with me. And, and I'm just thinking about my own stuff. I'm not really paying attention to road signs. And it would make perfect sense to me that... If you're on a highway and a road goes north and one then, as you head north, goes to the east, that the east lane would be on the right and the north lane would be on the left. And so I am dead focused on the left lane. I'm just moving along like that. And it's somewhere along the line, I am not making good progress towards my destination. And then, as you guys know from being in Southern California, all of a sudden I look and the mountains are to my left. This has happened three times to me. And I'm in San Bernardino now. And I'm like, how did that happen? And that's because somebody in their genius planning decided that we were going to have this lane, the left lane, go up and over and east and this lane underneath and through. And, and this is because I'm so hyper-focused on my little thing. Whatever it is, I'm so wound up on this that I'm not humble enough to recognize the opportunities that lay in front of me. And this is really what God is calling us to, is a dependence on him that will enable us to see the paths to take. And then our recognition, because of what we've learned in his presence, of our great weakness and our need for strength, so that only by the gift of his spirit could we say no to temptation and yes to righteousness. The means of grace given... For our growth and wisdom and character are only followed by God's grace and power. And it is through intimacy with Jesus that we find the Christ-honoring, God-glorifying, gospel-driven motive to love God. And, and it matters why we obey the Lord. If we do things for ourselves, they, they aren't for God's glory. They're often going to be, in the end, ways for people to look at us. If we do things because we think by doing them, we can somehow or other manipulate God into giving us what we want, we are really fooling ourselves and at the risk of being very proud, spiritually speaking. Have you ever met somebody? Have you ever been somebody 
who when they talked about God's blessing in their life, they talked about it as if they received it because of their faith or their prayers. And the presumption would be that they're the central figure in the drama that is their life. See, it's true, God does respond to prayers, as we'll see in the, in the chapters ahead. And specifically, the prayers of his people made in faith. But when Christians fail to see the prayers and the, the, the acts that we do as just the gracious means God has provided for him to work, we fall into the trap of the devil and begin to take pride in our own work. And that sets us up for a fall, because pride always precedes the fall. Spiritual arrogance is never supposed to be the characteristic of the Christian. We're always supposed to be pointing towards the person who has made our endurance possible. The Apostle Paul said this to the Ephesian elders when he was saying goodbye to them in Acts 20, 32. He said, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. See, in the end, it was God who superintended the promotion of Esther to the office of queen. By grace, he gifted her. By grace, he granted her favor. By grace, he enabled her to act wisely. And we see at the conclusion of Esther's time of coronation, when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. And to give you an idea of how the Jewish people since then have seen God as the central character in the book of Esther, is that the feast they celebrate every year to remember this is not called the Feast of Esther. It's called the Feast of Purim. It's about their deliverance. It's about God delivering them, not Esther delivering them. See, the people of God have seen God as the author of their success when they're seeing things right. And just as God is the hero of every biblical narrative, you can be confident that he'll be the hero in your personal story as well. Every Bible story is there to remind us of our need for divine rescue. And it is Jesus' sacrifice for our sins that is God's ultimate rescue. It is the rescue to which all the rescues ultimately point. And therefore, as we prepare our hearts for communion... I'd encourage you to hear these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, which tell us that all throughout the history of God's people, they've written these things down for our benefit to learn from their example. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Let us pray.